Hi, this is the Chris Yeh Podcast, and I am, as always, Chris Yeh. have a very special guest today. I'm here at Unreasonable Future, which is the Unreasonable Group program on the future of work. And I am joined here by the founder of the Unreasonable Group, the one, the only, Daniel Epstein. You need to stop right there, Chris. <laughs> That's way you're building me up. I'm getting nervous. Now, for those of you who haven't heard much about the Unreasonable Group, it is an absolutely incredible story that I'm going to force Daniel to tell parts of. Okay. Uh, but suffice to say that every year, a couple times a year, hopefully, yeah. I get to spend time with the team from the Reasonable Group. They gather together some of the world's most incredible impact entrepreneurs, people who are really actually saving the world. Yeah. They gather together some of the world's greatest people to be the mentors to those entrepreneurs. They gather together specialists and other folks who can help them in so many ways. And we form a tribe. And we get together and we try to help somewhere between 10 to 15 entrepreneurs accelerate the progress of their companies and solve some of the world's greatest problems. What could be better than that? I am a really good wrestle match with my dog. <laughs> but it's a very Your dog thing. is very cute. And, and I actually, admit. she's kind of got arthritis now and she won't really wrestle. So this might be as good as it gets. Fair enough. <laughs> now, here's the incredible thing about the Unreasonable Group. All of this began in 2010. Is that right? Well, 2010, we ran the very first Unreasonable Institute program. Mm -hmm. I'm, But if you go back in time, we ran what I refer to as a pilot okay. in 2008. Oh, really? uh, it wasn't supposed to be a pilot. It went down to smoke and flames, and out of the ashes of that, we built the Unreasonable Institute, and a couple years into that, Unreasonable Group. Um, so it's been a long journey. So this is one of those things. When people see something incredible like the Unreasonable Group, they just think, wow, think of the geniuses who put this together. Think about all the incredible things they did. They don't see the- I'm looking around me trying to figure out who you're talking about. The <laughs> pain and suffering that you went through. So let's dial all the way okay. back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I don't even know the yeah, full story. Yeah, probably don't. Yeah. All I know is I tell people it's in this insane, crazy thing. Yep. Some people who just graduated from the University of Colorado up there in yep. Boulder decide they're going to create essentially the world's first social impact accelerator. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Judy Garland and Nikki Rooney, let's put on a show. Yeah. And somehow it worked. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. take me back to 2008. Tell me what okay. was this crashing and burning that you okay. speak of? So, oh man. All right. So. To go to 2008, we have to go before that too, right? Okay. I'm really to, I think maybe 2005. I'm, and you know, at that point in time, so 2004, I started university, mm -hmm. University of Colorado at Boulder. And, and you know, I went to Boulder. Go Buffaloes. Go Buffs. Um, I went to Boulder, you know, if I'm candid, not for the university, but for Colorado and, mm -hmm. and, and honestly for the startup community. Mm -hmm. I'm, and I, I was amazed that, um, you know, Boulder is a small town. People say it's a city, but it's really a town. Um, where I came from is a town of 2,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and the interesting thing about that is you know, I've, I've found, at least in other people say ecosystems, other communities um, that are larger, whether that was, you know, I was looking Bay Area, and I was looking at Boston yeah. in yeah. terms of schools. Um, and I, I found in Boulder that I, you know, when, when entrepreneurs would meet and talk about their ideas, like in other places, it might be, oh, you know, we raised a Series B. And then the immediate question would be like, well, who was the lead? What were the terms? What was the valuation? What's the pre-money? And there's a lot of measuring. And in Boulder, because it's a small town, it's 
like if you're successful, Boulder is more successful. And so everybody, the ecosystem was just so supportive. Um, I hadn't seen that before. And the weather was amazing and the mountains, you know, everything was there. So I go to Boulder. I know I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I know nothing about what that means. I and and it's awkward. I'm studying math, finance, and econ. And when you start out at uni, you know, everybody asks you, what are you going to be? I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And the immediate follow-up question is, oh, that's so cool. Like, what's your idea? And it awkward silence, no ideas. I was like the worst wannabe uh, you can imagine. And I ended up dropping math, finance, and econ. Um, and I studied philosophy. I, I had to take a philosophy one-on-one course. And uh, it was like hedonistic mind candy. I, I was learning how to think, not what to think. Um, and so quickly dropped everything. Um, and with that amount of time, I could start a company now, I, like first semester. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I couldn't think of anything that was compelling. Um, or that really grabbed me. Was it going to be social media? Was it going to be e-commerce? Was it going to be apparel company? You know, And I wrote in my journal one night I'm, all these ideas. And then I put on my 18-year-old philosopher hat and said, well, what is entrepreneuring? I wrote on one line. I said, well, entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. I wrote on the next line. I could choose what problem sets I want to solve. And I wrote on the next line. I'm only going to work on problems that worthy of my life's work. And I said, I'm 18. I can give a damn if I'm 18 years old or not. The only thing I know about startups is it's hard and the odds are stacked against you. So, I will also yeah. point out that, Daniel, the entire time I've known you, you've yeah. looked much older than your physical age. Thank you. You are an old soul. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. But, you know, I, I will I'm say With that. With a very distinctive hairline. It's the same that it's always been. <laughs> it's like right there. It won't move, but it's far back. Um, but, uh, you know, I figured if I'm going to leverage my relationship to my reputation, my sleep, my equity mm-hmm. into starting something, and you could start anything. Why not start a company that if we're success- successful, we've been history in the right direction because of the nature of the problem we chose to solve. And for me, it wasn't a, I didn't get exposed to something to say I have a responsibility to this. I realized I could and I had an opportunity. And I don't, I actually don't understand how other entrepreneurs can work on problems that don't matter significantly for humanity. Um, I just can't relate to it. So. They want money. That could be it. Okay, so this gets to the point of why unreasonable. So actually, sorry, to answer your question. So started three companies in university. Um, all of them were trying to solve problems, typically delegated to the nonprofit world with for-profit models. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who to hang out with. And it's to your point, because I went to the nonprofit sector, being like, these are my, this is my tribe. We care about solving the same problems. And I was a misfit, like, to the core, because I'm a capitalist. Right. And they had the compassion. Yeah, and the desire to solve the problem. And the desire to solve the problem, but they yeah. didn't have the tools. They didn't have the tools. To do it in totally a commercial right. way. And the reason I would want to do it in a commercial way, I think profits are best driver for ingenuity. We need ingenuity when it comes to these sticky problems and markets for scale. And if we're going to solve it full stop, it needs to be, I think, wildly profitable. And so I went to the for-profit community being like, well, they get that. And I'm completely misfit because I actually don't care. I don't give a damn about profit in right. and of itself. It's just a tool, to your point. I... And it's a tool to maximize impact at scale. So unreasonable, you know, the pilot program in 2008, the genesis was selfish. It was uh, you know, myself and a good friend. His name is Mike Forte. Um, Mike, I love you. Not the best co-founder. He's an amazing doctor <laughs> is what he became. And it's totally appropriate. He's oh, an amazing physician. Oh, what does he practice? Um, you know, actually, I, actually sorry, I, I don't know, actually. Well, we'll I, look him up I, later. I know, I know. I gotta, we'll look him up later. We, we got to do that. I, but, I, you know, we had this crazy idea of let's bring together a cadre of misfits who we could seek refuge in who were other entrepreneurs foolhardy enough to believe you could change the world but so hell-bent and determined they wouldn't stop until they did so 2008 we're still i'm still in university yep. mike had graduated we brought i believe at that point in time 17 entrepreneurs 14 nationalities out to boulder for five weeks wow no budget i literally zero i'm 
I am, you know, kind of convinced a sorority house. Their house was empty in the summertime. These are mansions, right? They're empty, right. they're vacant. I convinced them basically to, you know, have us be their impact project. So we had this entire sorority mansion. We paid about $3 a night per person was the cost. Um, food was about a buck 50 a day. I mean, like this is bootstrapped, you know, what um, were you feeding them? <laughs> you know, well, it's cheap when you do it at scale and you don't, you know, and I mean, literally the whole thing we spent maybe 24 grand, five week program, fully immersive. I'm, and I just wanted a community. I, and if I didn't have to build it, yeah, I wouldn't have, I would have tried to get into it. Um, and that crashed and burned because uh, one of our partners in it actually ended up filing a suit against us to sue, Mike and I. Um, and that was a, a brutal, horrible 21-year-old experience when you know, that, was a, that was actually a nonprofit. Um, the and, nonprofit suit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We were, we were a nonprofit. Oh, you were a that, nonprofit. And this person sued us. Um, he sued a nonprofit. He or she, she sued a nonprofit. She, she, she did. She did. You know, I, it was good not to be yeah, yeah, sexist yeah, about yeah, yeah. that. And well, what what happened was um, it was just a letter, right? Um, and I, I learned that when there's not, at least my belief, when there's not equity, these mm -hmm. people fight over equity yeah. and for profits. There's yeah. oftentimes ego in nonprofits, and we, everybody has one, myself included. And Mike and I wanted to give that program to the participants to have rotational leadership, and um, this person didn't want that to happen. They wanted um, either we let it or she let it. I and so we ended up shutting it down, and it was like existential crisis for me. Did you I, finish the five weeks? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. it was amazing, okay. amazing. So um, the so the program worked, but the structure around it didn't. Totally, it was actually it was it was in essence so successful in terms of what we were, we were lucky enough to create that this person then wanted it to be theirs, mm -hmm. and I so I went into I've only done a couple of times, but I would say episodic depression. Didn't sleep, didn't eat for a couple of weeks. No exaggeration. It was like it was just episodic though, but it was real. But it's understandable. Yeah, and I got um, – he doesn't remember this conversation, which is so funny, which, which, which you know, I – but it meant a lot to me. Uh, so I met with um, one of our mentors at that time. His name is Paul Jurdy. He ran the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at CU. Go into his office, and I walk in, and I just look haggard because um, it's been two weeks, really no sleep. And, uh, you know, he says, tell me what happened. And I said, look, this is, I put my heart into this. It's the only thing I, you know, really, like, fully – uh, nonprofit. We sunk a bunch of money into it. It was all just about social good. And then I got sued. And uh, you know, one of this whole thing about kind of poor me. I am. Um, I can't. What's happening? I'm a student. Like, what's going on? And he looked at me and said, "I think I'm looking at the luckiest guy I've seen in months." And I looked back at Paul. I was like, "How? How? Like, almost like, how dare you? Like, did you not hear that?" And he said, "Look, because you you learned a very valuable lesson. It actually cost you nothing." Uh, he's like, "You learned that you need to have contracts. You need to have expectations on paper, no matter how close." you know, the friend might be. And he goes, and failure is only failure if you stop or if you don't start. He says, so get out of my office and keep doing it because this was just a, this was a speed bump. This is a lesson. And that like that moment on it, total posture change. And I, I would add, I think failure is only failure if you don't start, if you stop or you do something against your moral or ethical fiber. Mm -hmm. Those are the only definitions yep. of failure. So we launched a reasonable institute out of the ashes of that, co-founded it with one of the participants who was actually in the pilot, um, which is originally Vlad. And there's a lot of other co-founders. Interesting. interesting. Vladimir Povlovich Dubovsky, uh, clearly very Russian, heart of gold, is brilliant entrepreneur. And, uh, and then we started to get sharper. Um, I never had a plan of running that. I always wanted to have somebody else run it because I'm own companies. And then I got, I, I got addicted to leverage. And well, I mean that in the sense of impact. I realized I can launch one or two companies. And if I'm really lucky, I can have a huge impact with one of them. Really lucky. 
but with a low probability. With, with an extremely low probability, yeah. especially with me at the helm. Uh, or we could strive to be the, the most effective organization in the world at helping entrepreneurs who already had proven technologies and business models on the front lines. Yeah. And if we could do that, if we could help you go from bringing clean drinking water to 2 million people, it's already profitable. And we could take it to 200 million people faster. Like that's, that's a Delta worth chasing after. I am. And so, and I, since that's where we started to mature, started to go later stage. And, you know, now we work with, we, for the most part, growth equity companies. I'm, you know, the 180 CEOs that we support, they've raised over $3 billion in equity. They've generated over $3 billion in revenue. They're impacting over, over 330 million lives around the world measurably in literally every country and territory on the planet. And it's advanced technologies like here from 3D printing, you know, tissues uh, to the fastest growing distributed solar company in the world. And, uh, you know, companies that pull clean drinking water out of 3% humidity in the air in the middle of the desert with no electricity. Like, it's science fiction, but it's nonfiction. And these entrepreneurs, like, I'll stop talking, I promise, Chris. But, like, <laughs> they just have – I can I, can I Please. swear? Yeah. It's of course you can <laughs> swear. Like, Fuck yeah. yeah. But they have, they have so much fucking courage, right? There's, there's no shortage of brilliant ideas. There's, we all have them. Yeah. And there's, there's not a shortage of capital, at least at least in North America. There's certainly not a shortage of capital. It's not easy. It's not always easy to get it. Let's be clear about that. It's not always easy to get, but there's almost more money than there is sense, right? Um, but there's an unbelievable dearth of courage. And and it's not just the courage of being an entrepreneur. It's the courage of being an entrepreneur who says, I'm going to go after trying to solve one of the hardest problems in humanity. And like, and that's what they're doing here. And so we're just like lucky as sin, <laughs> you know, to play a tiny role, even if it's tiny. And helping them move the needle. Now, that's the amazing thing, I think, which is that I think a lot of people don't go after the biggest problems mm. because they're afraid they're not going to succeed. Yeah. And yet, all of entrepreneurship is an act of irrational oh, belief. It's all crazy. Like, to that whole point at the start, the odds are already stacked against yeah. you. Why not solve a problem that if you succeed, it benefits the planet or humanity? You know, like, it's hard no matter what. Totally. Yeah. But I think the other thing that's interesting. From a leverage standpoint, obviously, yeah. you're thinking about people raising money. You're yeah. thinking about creating millions of jobs. These are yeah. all great yeah. examples of impact. But the thing that I think makes Unreasonable so special is the way you've built a culture within the Unreasonable group that then, in turn, influences all of these incredible organizations yeah. and all the mentors who yeah. come in. And I think that having looked at a lot of different companies uh, mm. around the world and yeah. having worked with many companies, including many successful companies, yeah. I feel like the culture that you've been able to build, and admittedly, I'm sure there's problems as well. I'm on the outside. No problems, Chris. Perfect. I don't get to see all <laughs> the sausage being made. Yeah. But I think the consensus really is yeah. among the mentors, wow, yeah. this is one of yeah. the most amazing cultures yeah. we've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spoiled. Um, and that's... That's probably where most of the hard work has actually gone into. I think that I, I learned the hard way because, you know, I was um, not stupid. Well, in some ways stupid, naive, um, slightly pubescent, adolescent, you know, CEO who believed that I need to work 120 hours. Not need to. I actually loved working 120 hours, but that everybody on my team needs to. Uh, and if they're not, it's because they don't have conviction. And if they doubt it, it's because they don't believe enough. I mean, like, it was so immature. And if they don't believe enough, screw them. Get them out. Literally, that's, you know, eight years ago, I would have mm -hmm. talked like that. It was just stupid. I And I, because we're surrounded by great mentors and CEOs, 
I'm, I realized that, you know, for a reasonable, for me, this is a hundred year game. I'm, you know, we're in partnership with Pearson, 180 year old company, you know, partnership with Barclays over 329 years old. Like I, if we are good at what we do, if asterisks, and if we're effective, um, at helping you know, the most impactful solutions in the world reach scale, then we should be in business forever. And as soon as you take off the seven to 10 year time horizon, you say, okay, I want to build a company that lasts multiple generations. You start to think of the long game and you realize that your number one asset is your culture and your people. And it's, and it's not cheesy. It's true. Especially if you look long, right? Uh, and a lot of companies don't do that. I am. And you know, I, I had to get, smacked with reality to realize that and then you know maybe i don't know six years ago seven years ago i realized that my number one job as a ceo is how do we strive to have the best culture of the planet i uh, will never measurably get there we'll never say we did it it's a forever journey so it's always humbling but it's real work and uh, it's a it's a strategic imperative is it's the most and i know that there's so much that goes into it because part of it is that you're always adapting, yeah. adjusting, yeah. refining. Well, I've seen the yeah. changes happen myself. Yeah. And it's the programs changing, but also the culture and the yeah. values have yeah. changed. And I think yeah. we've talked about some of these in some of our yeah. conversations. Yeah. I've spoken about it with Coleman and other yeah. folks as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, so culture is uh, forever. Yeah. It's, it, once again, there's a North Star there. I'm best culture that you could have. You'll never achieve it, but it gives you some guidance. So how do you get there? Um, we outlined our values. I'm, yeah, we've adapted them and we'll continue to adapt them, but um, we live by them. And so we do a culture audit uh, three times a year. Um, it's, we call it the Culture Pulse Survey. 100% anonymous. I'm, you know, we, we have a, it's like a value like learn always, right? Uh, everybody in the company will anonymously rank how well we're doing, almost like an NPS, not quite an NPS, but almost like that, I, on it, how well we're performing every value. Um, we get all of that data. We have a dashboard and we can track over time. Let's use an easier value like health and family first, right? I, we can see I, yeah, in one quarter, we got a 9.1 out of 10 average. Mm -hmm. And then the next quarter, quarter we got a 7.5. That begs the question, what the fuck happened? Right. right? Uh, and what might we do to get back there? What are the policies, the traditions, the language, the hiring? Like, I mean, everything uh, ties into... How do we better live that value? We have a conversation about it, and then we implement new changes. And the next quarter, it goes up uh, or it goes down or it flatlines. And what's so interesting, though, is even if you get like a – let's say you get a 9.1 on family and health first. That would be an amazing score. Begs the question, what might we do to get to a 10? Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. And so what we're trying to do is get our – the way we show up in the world and how we practice business – to become more and more proximate to the values we aspire to have, knowing we'll never fully be there. But that's like, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's like, it's so empowering. So it's like our culture actually changed our values lead to the practices and policies and habits of communication, architecture and language and nomenclature and compensation policies that actually lead to like real change on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual rhythm of the company. And like, it's cool. Culture is time and space it's a real thing right and it's a way to quantify it that we uh, stole from a company called sterling rice group and it was one of the best this culture pulse survey idea is brilliant it's brilliant and again let me say i have tremendous admiration for the culture that you've built and continue to build 
I have tried to build culture in the various places I've gone. I have not been nearly as successful as you. Uh, You can start off with the best of intentions, but you guys have been able to really make it stick. And part of it is something that we talk about in Blitzscaling, which is that it's really important to have a strong culture. And one of the things about a strong culture Mm -hmm. is that sometimes people can say, say, this is a really strong culture. Sometimes they can say, this is a cult. And you can put the cult back in culture. <laughs> and I, I do notice that Let's talk about tattoos. Tonight. You have a number of folks with unreasonable tattoos. Yeah. You didn't say where your I unreasonable have one on tattoo my, is. Uh, right butt cheek. On your right butt cheek. Yeah, it's on the right one. How often do you show that to people? Not that often, man. Uh, yeah, as I got older, you know, more hair ended up growing down there, and it's just not as pleasant as it once was. Why um, did you choose the right butt cheek, <laughs> by the way? So I. Um, yeah, yeah, Josh has oh, a couple Josh, photos. Josh, the VP of community, has some photos of the, <laughs> of, the, of the tattoo. Perhaps we'll have that as an extra. The colonel has a couple. I, yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, I just I, I think that, like, in life for me, I do take the work that we do seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. And I think that's just more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what had happened is in the very first Reasonable Institute, summer 2010, mm-hmm. two weeks into it, was a 10-week program. Full, like, it was insane. Fully immersive. I And two of the entrepreneurs went out and got a tattoo of our logo. Um, and I'm not exaggerating at that time. I had less than $50 in the, in the bank account for the, for the company. And you know, I'm on credit. Like, I mean, this is ridiculous. Right. And they came back and I you said, took on oh, risks that I frankly have to say were irrational. Stupid. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, well, I, I don't know if they're necessary, um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but they came back and they had tattoos of the logo and I was like, well, you, you're insane. Like this guy, I showed him the bank accounts. Like this could falter now. Like, what are you doing? Um, and they said it's not it's not a logo, it's a symbol because of the light bulb with wings. And right. I said it's it's you know it's something like it's about you know ensuring your dreams take flight and are realized in the light of day kind of thing. And once they got tattoos, they're like, you have to get one. I don't have a tattoo other than that. And so I called my parents. Um, and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. They did it, and much to my surprise, they're like, go after it. And I talked to my mom, and she's like, "Where are you gonna get it?" And I thought it'd be kind of cool to get like a sailor's tattoo, you know, right. like like the side of your arm, shoulder kind of thing, or maybe Dave a, has the one, yeah, on, on the forearm, forearm right? Really cool. um, you know, I was like, "Oh yeah." And my mom looked at me, and she's like, "What do you really want to get?" It? I was like, "What?" And she's like, "What do you really want to get?" I was like, "My my butt cheek." And she was like, "Just get it there." And I was like, "Really?" <laughs> you know, and part of that, I'm not gonna lie, it's like. Uh, a really dear friend, uh, he's almost a brother. I don't see him enough, but um, we were roommates, study abroad. His name's Alex Pelly. He, he had a he had a tattoo on his butt cheek, and I just thought it was so funny. Uh, I, this is a horrible what podcast. Tattoo do, what tattoo does he have on <laughs> well, his butt? Cheek? His is different. I think Al got really drunk okay. and got like an anchor there. Um, it was a total joke. A classic um, sort classic, of sailor a classic, tattoo. A classic okay. sailor tattoo. Okay. But I just thought it was hilarious. It's like don't take yourself too seriously. Like, and, and I figured at that point in time. That someday the board would fire me, and if they did, that I would walk out of there. And You'd moon them. I'd moon them and say, "Look how dedicated I am! How dare you!" And walk out the door. I, I don't, I don't think that's going to be the scenario anymore. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was just. Don't take yourself too seriously. Well, by the way, last laughs on you. Those entrepreneurs yeah. were absolutely right. It seems. Yeah. Uh, by the way, which yeah. entrepreneurs were those? Um, ben, uh, Ben Lyon mm-hmm. with uh, um, Copa Copo. Uh, which is a mobile was um, probably they they changed to like credit, but a mm-hmm. mobile financing application in Kenya. I'm mm-hmm. um, golly, who was the other entrepreneur? I they're gonna kill me. I it's fleeting right now. 
It's fleeted. I will admit, we are recording this at 11.20 something at night. And I'm tired, Chris. I'm sure we've both drunk quite a bit of wine tonight as well. And it's just late. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, uh, there's about 40 people who probably have the tattoo now, maybe more. Um, and, uh, you know, it's silly. It's a joke. Um, to your point, though, cult and culture. So I will say, um, so one of our mentors, Seth Godin, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I first met him. And he was really generous with his time. We sat down and he said, tell me the vision. And I painted this whole thing. Uh, and it was, you know, ridiculously aspirational. It was, blah, blah, blah. you know, we're going to have 100 institutes in 100 countries. And, um, you know, world domination, create a revolution of entrepreneurs, going to, you know, all this stuff. Uh, and he said, look, and I was telling him about the business model because I thought the incentive structure was what I would call right. pure, right, and aligned. I, and, I, you know, when we, I, when we talked through it at the end of the conversation, he said, look, your business model, that's not going to work. He goes, but I have no question that you'll eventually figure it out. He goes, that's not the issue. So what you need to do is study religion, study cults, and study Harvard's alumni. Mm. And I thought that was a very strange <laughs> piece of perspective. I said, what do you mean? And I, I, he said that I, you need to look at religion because there, in essence, there are traditions uh, and stories that bond anybody of any religion somehow culturally together, yep. no matter where they are in the world. Cults, I, they take practices and rituals very seriously, and that makes you feel like you're a part of something that's bigger. Uh, and Harvard's alumni, they're methodical. Uh, they have a database around ensuring that you put in the hard work to ensure that you're still a part of this network that's growing. I'm, it's what he meant to say is be intentional about culture because that's the thing that matters most, much more than a business. But that's not what he meant to say. That is what he said. But I never studied a cult, if I'm, if I'm candid. I did, I did look at religion, though, which kind of is a cult. That is very important. (laughs) We're going to pick this up again in part two of this podcast. Daniel, thank you again. And we'll be recording part two in the near future. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.